Creative Babble. Hey guys, before we begin this episode, I just wanted to let you know that there's going to be a sneak peek of the new season of Criminal Conduct after the episode. I interviewed a serial killer. It's kind of a long story, so make sure to check out the trailer at the end of this episode. Okay, let's start the show. So Rebecca, last time we were talking about cults almost as if they were a startup. Yeah, and like startups, you know, if things go right, they get bigger, they grow, they get more people, and they start operating like proper organizations. I mean, cults, they come in all shapes and sizes. There are cults with fewer than 50 followers and some with more than 50,000. But regardless of size, recruitment is a key part of any self-respecting cult. And the key to recruiting is finding like-minded members who will buy into the cult's primary mission. And no two of those primary missions are ever the same. Like Heaven's Gate members, they believed they were going to hitch a ride on the Haley Bop Comet in order to save humanity. And the way they were going to do that was by committing mass suicide. Yeah, and Scientologists reportedly pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to clear their negative influences and to reach their full potential. Yeah, QAnon followers believe a cabal of satanic, cannibalistic pedophiles are operating a global child sex trafficking ring in order to control United States politics. The only thing crazier than these ideas is the fact that some people actually fall for this crap. I mean, most of us hear these stories and just assume that cult members must have some sort of mental illness. While that might be true for some, the vast majority of cult members are pretty average, really. They're people just like you and me. Agreed. And I'd even argue, Javier, that some are above average in some ways. They're go-getters, they're idealistic, and they have a vision for a better world and they want to be a part of it. The truth is, all of us, yes, even you listeners, we can all fall for a cult. And if that sounds crazy to you, you just haven't found the right one yet. I'm Rebecca Sebastian from the Dialogue Podcast. And I'm Javier with the Pretend Podcast. And today we're going to continue our conversation about the business of cults. We're going to talk about the mechanics of how cults operate. Like any business, there's a recruitment component, but there's also middle management. You know, the people who are actually keeping the cult running. That's right. And speaking of keeping a cult running, we have a pretty exciting guest on. Her name is Sarah Edmondson. Sarah rose pretty high up the ranks of Nexium, that multi-level marketing company that evolved into a cult that ran a secret sex cult from the inside. You may have seen Sarah Edmondson on the HBO doc, The Vow, or listened to her podcast, A Little Bit Culty. All right, Rebecca, let's kick this thing off.
Picture this, a foggy evening, the whisper of secrets in the air, and an invitation to step back into the glamorous and mysterious 1920s. That's the backdrop of June's Journey, the game that's been keeping me glued to my phone lately. Instead of doom scrolling on social media, I am actually playing the part of June Parker, a daring detective with a personal mission to solve her sister's murder. And let me tell you, it is a roller coaster of emotions and puzzles. What's to love? Well, first of all, the thrill of hunting for hidden objects. I'm a sucker for these kinds of games. It's kind of like those books that we grew up with, but with a storyline that keeps thickening. Plus, the game takes place in New York to Paris, uncovering clues of scandalous family secrets that make you feel like a real detective. If you're ready for a dose of mystery, romance, and the glamour of the 1920s, June's Journey is waiting for you. Download it for free on iOS and Android, and let's see who cracks the case first. So, Rebecca, why do some people join cults? Well, research tells us that a majority of people who end up joining a cult were recruited during a particularly stressful or vulnerable time in their life. That could be a death in the family, they might have just lost a job or had a recent divorce, or even a college student living away from home for the first time. Yeah, and I, I can imagine that people who probably suffered child abuse are probably pretty easy targets. The bottom line is that we all have some empty hole in our heart that is easy to exploit. Absolutely. And prime targets for cults have an intense desire to be part of something bigger than themselves. And sometimes these targets are unassertive and don't feel comfortable questioning authority. They're trusting and therefore they take cult leaders at their word. They're also optimistic and they believe that most people have good intentions. Yeah, if I had to stereotype a cult member, I would say that they like to live in a world where there's a lot of certainty and control. They don't like the unknown. And guess who has all the answers? Cult leaders. That's right. Yeah, in some cases, cult members are disillusioned by the mainstream media, and sometimes they don't fit in with their peers. Like... QAnon is a perfect example. People who follow Q, the anonymous government insider, tend to feel alienated from family and friends, so they feel more comfortable expressing themselves on a Facebook group rather than to their own family or friends. You know, we just talked about the qualities of cult members, and that prime target list pretty much describes me. I'm very trusting, I like stability, I respect authority, and I tend to gravitate towards people who think like me. That being said, I'd also like to think that I'd never join a cult, but you never know. It's the same thing with con artists. If a person claims that they could never get conned, well, they're lying to themselves, because that means that your defenses are low and that you are a prime target for a con artist, or in this case, a cult leader. Yes, yes. And remember, cult leaders don't want mindless sheep following them. They want people who are smart and can work to keep the cult running and protect the cult. In the business world, we would call this middle management. They need people who can recruit, who can woo new members and are able to raise and donate money. I was able to speak with sociologist, author, and cult expert, Dr. Yanya Lalich. Here's what she said. So it's not weak-willed, weak-minded people. I mean, cults want A-type personalities. They want people who can perform for them, who can run the businesses, who can recruit, who can bring in contacts and celebrities to lend legitimacy. 
you know, they don't want people who are going to sit around and do nothing and complain. (laughs) And she would know. Not only is she a leading expert on cults, she was also in one for 10 years, and it was her full-time work, life, everything. I joined this political organization that was basically founded and led by women. And before I knew it, I was in this very restrictive group. We had to take on new names. We worked 20 hours a day, seven days a week. Since her escape, which actually led to the downfall of her own cult, Dr. Lalich has devoted her post-cult life to teaching how to spot coercive organizations. Dr. Lalich says that at first, they're pretty hard to spot. But the most surprising part of our conversation was her description of the dynamics inside of a cult. It's not really the leaders who do the recruiting. It's the, it's, it's the leaders, usually their lieutenants and next levels down get trained as recruiters. The leaders are the ones who are lazy in most sports. They're the ones who sit back and get waited on and don't do very much. Um, I'm glad you said that. But it's everyone else who goes out and does the recruiting. And most of the recruiting, at least initially, is done through friendship networks. Um, Right. And those are people you trust, you know, asking you to come to something or, you know, whatever it might be. And, of course, today a lot of it is in the business world. There are so many of these um, leadership training courses, management courses, that are extremely cultic, and some of them actually are cults, uh, certainly in the top rungs. And so in many ways today, uh, the cults have mainstreamed, and they're actually recruiting uh, older people rather than kids in college. That's really interesting. I've always envisioned a cult leader as a micromanager, like the worst micromanager. And that might be true for some cult leaders, but... In order to grow, a call leader has to kind of let go and empower the team to handle most of the growth, right? Exactly. And it also distances them from any conflict or pushback that might happen. Many cults follow the same indoctrination techniques used in the corporate world. Welcome to the island. You are now a member of the Dharma Initiative. You are now part of Yeah, whenever we start a new job, most people go through what they call onboarding. A newly hired employee goes through several corporate brainwashing sessions to drill in the company's culture. Welcome to the seven and a half floor of the Merton Flummer Building. As you'll now be spending your workday here, it is important that you learn a bit about the history of this famous floor. Hello, Don. <laughs> exactly. We've all seen those training videos. Let's talk about some cult onboarding techniques. So let's say you're feeling apprehensive or unsure. A cult is always right there to remind you of the, quote, truth. They rally around you. They shower you with praise and support and affirmations. Experts call this love bombing. And in the beginning, a cult can feel like the family you never had. You're inundated with this love and support. Once the cult lures you in, the next step is to isolate you from anyone and everyone on the outside. This could be a weekend retreat or filling up your schedule with busy work. Anything that fosters connection with them and takes you away from your quote-unquote old life. Eventually, a lot of cults will cut you off from the news, the internet, until you're fully immersed in their world as a way to establish control. There's no earthly way of knowing (laughs) which direction we are going. There's no knowing where we're rowing or which way the river's flowing. Is it raining? Yeah, and once you're lost in this world, they will subject you to a disorienting mix of love and terror. They induce fear in order to create a need to stay within the group. 
When a person loses control of their life, they tend to gravitate towards what's safe. And in the case of many groups, it's right into the cult leader's arms. But Javier, I can't emphasize this enough, that just because someone or you or me have all or some of these qualities making them vulnerable to joining a cult, it definitely doesn't mean they're stupid. No, exactly. But you know what the scary thing about this whole thing is? That in the 70s and 80s, you know, the golden age of cults, you had to physically recruit someone. But today, social media, especially YouTube and Facebook group, has become the secret weapon for cult recruitment. Totally. I think most of us can relate to a sketchy Facebook invite. Do not engage with those. In 2022, you're more likely to be recruited through a Facebook group than an in-person encounter. And as a parent, it's terrifying to think that my kid could be upstairs in their room, on their phone, joining a cult. And I wouldn't even know until it's too late. Nah, Facebook is for boomers now. Your kids are fine. (laughs) (laughs) Rebecca, are you familiar with Teal Swan? Mm, I've heard her name, but not really familiar with the story. All right. I have to warn our listeners, what we're about to talk about is really disturbing. We're going to talk about suicide. And if this topic triggers you or upsets you, I would just skip ahead a couple minutes. So there's this woman named Teal Swan. Her real name is Mary Teal Bosworth. But Teal Swan has a catchier ring to it, doesn't it? Totally. (laughs) Teal is a self-proclaimed spiritual teacher. She's not a mental health professional. She's ha- She actually has no real experience at all. Yet she dedicates her life to, quote unquote, helping depressed and suicidal people. She claims she's qualified because she herself is a suicide survivor. In this video, Swan suggests that suicidal people are wasting their time seeking help from the medical community. What suicide is, is pushing the reset button. We must understand that that is relief and it is release, and they have set themselves free and they have pushed the reset button and they have reemerged with source perspective. If Teal Swan is a spiritual leader for the suicidal, then her Facebook group is her church. Just on Facebook alone, Teal has 2.5 thousand members, and on YouTube, she has more than a million subscribers. One of the members of Teal Swan's group was an 18 year old girl named Casey who was experiencing depression after a bad breakup. Two weeks after watching the video that we just played, Casey killed herself. And this was a woman who was absolutely miserable. I am talking every moment of her life was a nightmare. And so we had that very serious sit-down talk where we had to say, all right, we're either committing or not committing to life. And what's interesting is when she asked herself that question, the answer was no, I'm done. So she chose to commit suicide. Interestingly enough, it took her about two days before she was reincarnated again. We don't know how big of an impact Teal's video had on Casey or whether it had anything to do with her suicide, but her last post in the group used the same type of language used by Teal Swan. Here's cult expert Rick Allen Ross again. Part of it is the proliferation of groups online where they have a leader, they have a following, People are interacting. They may be uh, Skyping. They may be following someone on Twitter, on Facebook. They're watching endless YouTubes on YouTube channels maintained by these groups and leaders. And they're becoming indoctrinated, uh, becoming true believers, and even giving money through PayPal. And it's all happening online, and it is not happening face-to-face. Javier, that is seriously disturbing. So dark. 
I mean, death is sometimes a byproduct of cults, but it isn't the norm, is it? Not at all. Actually, most cults don't want their members to die. In fact, they want recruits that can thrive. As sick as this sounds, suicide is Teal Swan's business. She offers on-demand courses for a few hundred dollars, each ranging to almost $3,000. She does live events where tickets can cost up to $400 a ticket. And of course, she offers a week-long retreat in Costa Rica where you can walk through and plan your own suicide in paradise. Oh, that is appalling. And reminds me of another very cultish woman from Australia who led a movement encouraging people to exist on nothing but air and light. It's actually an ancient spiritual practice called breatharianism. But this woman, Josh Muheen, she took it and manipulated it into some sort of expensive faux spiritual weight loss program. Several people died after following her advice, which she dispensed at expensive retreats and in the multiple books she sold. She called her practices light eating, but experts, they called it lethal pseudoscience. Hard to say definitively if she was a con artist or a cult leader, but this might help. Her name, it wasn't Josh Muheen. Like Teal Swan, she found something a little more catchy because it was Ellen Grieve. She sounds like a con artist wrapped in a cult. And like we've said, a cult is just another type of con. So maybe encouraging to kill your members isn't the best business plan for cults. Let's talk about a cult that's a little bit more relatable. Yes, a cult that can be found in almost everyone's Facebook feed, multi-level marketing scams. I mean, Javier, we can't have a conversation about the business of cults and not talk about MLMs. Yeah, I'm, I'm literally shaking my head. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if this is a gender thing or not, but there's a lot of uproar lately about the term boss babe, which I've heard, but I don't get. Why is this idea of a boss babe such a bad thing? Oh, don't get me started, Javier. We don't have time to unpack this whole thing in just one episode, but the term and ones like it, to me, they prey on women who are struggling with real life issues like childcare, maternity leave, unequal pay in the workforce. And they're applying this overly simplistic solution to an incredibly complex set of problems. They tell us we can make full-time income by hashtag work from home, hashtag part-time, hashtag never leave your kids. Then we go ahead and sign up and the MLM tries to take control of our lives. They monitor what we wear. They influence our weight, our marriage, our social media posts, and how we spend every waking hour of our day. So you had this great conversation with Amanda Montel about these pyramid-adjacent schemes. So they make these incredible promises, knowing all the while that the math just doesn't check out. Anyone yeah. who's familiar with, with how MLMs operate, Eventually, unless you're at the lucky tippity top of that pyramid, you're you're going to lose out. And yet the psychological manipulation and gaslighting that has been put in place is such that it's going to be hard for you to leave because you're clinging to this promise that if you just work hard enough, if you just put in enough time, effort, grit, heart, like you will succeed. And if you start to feel like you won't, well, that's just a victim mindset. A company called LuLaRoe really came into the spotlight last year after the documentary Lula Rich came out. The company manipulated its members into leaving their regular jobs, dressing alike, going on specific diets in some cases, and speaking kind of this insider language that only they could understand. 
That's the culty side. But there's a serious con side to this operation as well. I talked to the directors of Lula Rich, Jenner First and Julia Willoughby Nason. Here's what Jenner said. And they are incentivized when they sell inventory, but also incentivized when they recruit more people to buy wholesale from LuLaRoe. And so many multi-level marketing companies have a very fine line to be legal in which you really have to make the majority of your money from selling inventory. But the reality is that many people are making the majority of their money from recruiting people. So let me make sure I understand. Multi-level marketing companies say they're not a pyramid scheme because they're selling products, right? But in reality, the products are just a cover for what they're really doing, which is recruiting people. Exactly. That's why the line between MLMs and pyramid schemes is so murky. There are laws in place now that require MLMs to make a certain amount in actual product sales, as opposed to just recruitment bonuses. That's how LuLaRoe started getting in trouble. Consultants were making six-figure bonuses for recruiting people when their sales during that same period were significantly lower. So businesses, cults, and MLMs all require recruitment in order to survive. Our next cult is the perfect case study of all three. When we come back, we're going to talk to Nexium cult survivor and whistleblower, Sarah Edmondson. This is a story you might not have heard before. But some of the details might seem familiar. A charismatic, power-hungry leader. What I felt coming from that man could not have come from a normal person. Never, ever, ever. I mean, it was obvious to me that he was somebody that was a higher being. He's destroyed all kinds of people's lives. It's terrible. A group shouted in mystery. We used to call them the veggies or the, the vegetarians. The vegetarian mafia with some rather unorthodox practices. With crystals and purple cloth and, uh, you know, a chiropractic table that you use, that they used for laying you on to do this aura balance. Crazy man, sheets that I can't believe it. You know, like rubbing down your entire bathroom with a toothbrush and all the time chanting something, some words or something. And the seemingly normal Toronto suburb that they call home. It wasn't somewhere I would walk at night. So I always felt a little bit like the junction I associated with being on sort of the wrong side of the tracks. Chasing Enlightenment, a new podcast from host Daniel Monroe. You can find more information and updates at chasingenlightenment.net. His idea is to arrange for you to combine your purchasing power, everything you buy, with millions of other Americans into one big purchasing family to give us all some clout when it comes to getting a better price. His name is Keith Ranieri. His idea is called Consumer's Byline. And I'd like Before to- he became a convicted felon who is currently serving 120 years in federal prison for running a secret sex cult, Keith Ranieri was a failed multi-level marketing leader. Yeah, this is a video from back in the 90s, and it did not age well. No. Before he became the vanguard guru, we will come to know, he was just another shady swindler peddling a pyramid scheme. Keith, happy to see you again. Yes, happy to see you too. It's an amazing idea. Yes, well, sometimes it even amazes me. But Consumer's Byline is wonderful, and it's working. 
Oh, the cringe. But consumer bylines wasn't amazing or wonderful at all. People had to invest their own money in order to become members, and they made money by recruiting more people in order to turn a profit. But guess what? Most people lost everything, and the company ultimately failed. It was so bad of an idea that even the New York Attorney General's office opened up an investigation. And as a result, Keith Ranieri signed a consent order prohibiting him from promoting, offering, or granting participation in a chain distribution scheme, a.k.a. a Ponzi scheme. But no legal agreement was going to hold back this brilliant mastermind. Oh no, Ranieri's next business venture slash con slash cult was going to have a much more spectacular ending. He called it Executive Success Program, but rebranded it once again in 2017 to what we now know as Nexium. Rebecca, you know more about Nexium than anyone I know. Your audience knows all about this cult, but refresh our memory for those of us who are unfamiliar with this cult. Oh, with pleasure, Javier. So Executive Success Program, IRL, or ESP, as insiders called it, was Keith Ranieri's next big venture. But honestly, it was just another unremarkable MLM company. They offered the usual menu of business and personal development courses and seminars for people who wanted to be what they called, quote, ethical entrepreneurs or to practice something they called capitalism with a conscience. And yeah, there was also some faux spirituality and philosophy thrown into the curriculum for good measure. But wait a minute. I thought Ranieri signed an agreement not to start another MLM company. Oh, he did. But he also created a legal loophole for himself. He founded ESP, but on paper, he didn't legally start the company. He gave the honor of president to his co-founder, Nancy Salzman. So, Rebecca, I have a confession. When I learned about Nexium, it really hit home. Okay, why? Because I was a huge Smallville fan. <laughs> And two of my Smallville crushes were Nexium members. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Oh, wow. The things you learn about your podcast co-host. I'm sorry to hear that, Javier. Yeah. Yeah, the actress Kristen Crook, who played Lana, and Allison Mack, who played Chloe on Smallville, were both Nexium leaders and Ranieri's sexual partners. But we're getting ahead of ourselves, Javier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This podcast is not a deep dive on Nexium. It, it can't be. There's too much. But it is about the business of cults. And there is no better example of a corporate cult like Nexium. Javier and I recently spoke to Sarah Edmondson about her experience. Yeah, I want to know all about the way they recruited and why she even joined this cult. Ah, but you see, she didn't think she was joining a cult. Let, let's uh-huh. let Sarah tell it. Yeah, well, we called it the we called it a company. Like I thought I was part of an organization. We called it an organization. We called it a company. Like we thought it was that exactly, <laughs> and it was structured that way. Well, even just the way that it was pitched to me, it, I wasn't. I never heard the word Nexium until years later. It was executive success programs, and that. So super corporate, to, almost to the point where it was too corporate for me. And like the trainers were in power suits and you get a binder and there's a whiteboard and the whole setup of the training is like a corporate personal and professional development training. So basically the way he set it up was that he was the, he was the vanguard. He was the philosophical founder of a movement, but he wasn't the head of the company. I mean, Talk about red flags right there to name yourself that. But just like they say on the day one of the training is you're going to feel uncomfortable because you're here to work on issues and, you know, no pain, no gain. 
Yeah, in the beginning of Nexium, everything was very corporate-y, except for a few unconventional tenets of the organization. One of the first red flags that something wasn't right was Raniere would make his students call him Vanguard and Nancy Salzman Prefect. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> well, it's just so weird. It's, it's so weird. <laughs> Who calls himself that? I know. When we were uncomfortable with things like, wait, you want me to call him Vanguard? Like, what? what is that? <laughs> you know, it was, well, see, there's an example of like, perhaps you have some authority issues. You know, we call the judge your honor and we call, um, you know, a doctor, doctor or professor, professor. Like th- there's there's names for what you've built. Keith is the philosophical founder. So we call him Vanguard. At this point, Sarah Edmondson is fully immersed in the cult, but she doesn't even realize it. Rebecca, let's talk about how this cult is structured. Obviously, Ranieri and Salzman are on top of the pyramid scheme. But what's the chain of command? Great question. Nexium had a very well-defined org chart and a very bizarre one at that. We have a karate martial arts system for rank. All Nexium students were required to wear a colored sash around their necks during class, similar to the belt system in karate. There were white sashes, yellow, green, blue, and gold. Each color represented a certain level, starting with white. Yeah, and nothing about these sashes is culty at all. No. It's not a dead giveaway, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, if we weren't sure it was a cult yet, the sashes pretty much sealed the deal. Let's let Sarah explain. Everyone be like, I wish we didn't have the sashes. I really wish we didn't. But then I'd also be like, but it's a symbol of my growth. And it meant something different to me as I grew. I'm going to use the, the sashes to explain the ranking system. When you start taking a training, you're a white sash. And then once you decide if you want to be a coach, which is yellow, and then then after the yellow is what's called proctor. Uh, senior proctor is after that, which is green. And then blue is counselor. And then purple is senior counselor. And then after that, there was a bunch of sashes that nobody ever got to. And then gold sash, which is prefect. And then Keith wore a double white sash because he's an internal student. But it created this illusion of a hierarchy, right? But in reality, there was only two on top. Yeah. Right? In reality, there were there was the two on top, the bunch of students that are overseen and they're coached by coaches who, by the way, are not paid. You don't get paid until you're an orange sash. So the the funds, you mentioned funds and yeah. paid positions. Mm-hmm. So is it purely commission or was it was there uh, set salaries, like a minimum that you knew you could rely on, or did you have to work to make the whole income? It was yeah. mostly commission. You know, no one was on salary. Salary is not ethical if you don't know that. Um, oh. yeah, cause you have to be paid on the work that you produce. You can't get paid just cause you have a job. This was part of the whole thing. Wow. So I was making money, but I was also putting it back into my development. We know that at the top, the pyramid is always super small, but did, yeah. was the feeling down at the bottom and towards the middle that that was possible? Was the messaging like, keep working, keep working and you're going to get there? Yes. I made really good money, but so much of it went right back into the running of it. It was crazy. You know, with an MLM, you have to purchase like $200 a month worth of like skincare or vitamins or whatever. And that kind of keeps the company going. Mm-hmm. Ethos was like that. All this, every student, including every coach, Proctor Green, every member of the company, if you wanted to have a coach and be coached and be part of it, we're spending, when I started, it was $200 a month and ended up being $300 a month when I left. So you have to pay for your Ethos membership, even as a coach. 
Even at so the proctor. Shady. So shady. Sarah references Ethos. This was just the name of the coaching program and courses members could take to progress through the program. Members would rise within the organization or move up the stripe path by enrolling in more classes and recruiting new participants. But there was another way to climb up the ranks, right? Some might even call it a fast track. All of the women, except for me, were sleeping with Keith <laughs> on the executive board and then the green, blue, purples which I didn't know until I left. So that's a, another complicated thing with the structure. Yeah, Ranieri and your dream girl, Alice and Mac, would, they would go on to create a secret society of mostly women within Nexium called Dominus Obsequious Sororium, or DOS for short. You can say that again. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to. It's really hard to say. Yeah. DOS took multi-level marketing to a whole new level. Instead of coaches and recruits, they had masters and slaves. It was sold as a female empowerment group, but really it was just a twisted plan to deliver sex slaves to Ranieri and then brand them with his initials. Sarah was invited by her best friend, Lauren, who was also prefect Nancy Salzman's daughter. He said to Lauren uh, when she recruited me into DOS, does, does Sarah understand that, that, that you are the priority and that, um, I'm paraphrasing here, if you command her to have sex with another man, that she has to do it. And Lauren said, yeah. <laughs> and luckily it all blew up before I got that command. The last time I saw Keith. So he comes in, he checks in on me in, this, in the studio, this voice studio or like the filming studio that's off Nancy's kitchen to make sure I'm caffeinated and doing okay. Because guess what? I'd been branded eight days earlier and was not doing well. And he says to me, just make sure that your state is up, which is a term in Nexium, like that you're in a good state. Like you don't t teach or pitch or do anything unless you're up, right? And he said, it's all about creating the illusion of hope. That was the most honest thing he's probably ever said, right? Exactly. He I just gave you the key to the kingdom. He gave me the key. And, and that's when if things unraveled for me later. I was like, oh, the whole thing is an illusion of hope. The mm -hmm. whole thing. When we come back, we're going to talk about the cult slash con that took over Silicon Valley. Rebecca, in the last episode, we talk about the classic Manson, Jonestown, Heaven's Gate cults. The 70s were, like we said, the golden age of cults. These days, cults are a little less obvious, right? Take, for example, the convicted felon, Elizabeth Holmes. We've made it possible to run comprehensive laboratory tests from a tiny sample or a few drops of blood to eliminate the tubes and tubes of blood that traditionally have to be drawn from an arm and replaced it with the nanotainer. The youngest billionaire in the world. Mm -hmm. Is that heady when you hear that? You know, it's, it's not what matters. Um, what matters is how well we do in trying to make people's lives better. You founded this company 12 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. Tell them how old you were. I was 19. So, Rebecca, tell the people about Elizabeth Holmes and why you and I consider her a modern age cult leader. Whew, there's a lot going on in that story, Javier. It's like con artist meets the cult of personality in one juicy startup story. 
Now remember, like the cults and businesses we've already covered, Elizabeth started out with a great idea, a solution to the problem of painful, inconvenient blood draws. She set out to design an easy finger prick test that could give patients and doctors more answers than were previously possible. A finger prick and a single drop of blood can tell you everything you need to know about my health. I actually still think this is a good idea, by the way. Maybe Elizabeth Holmes was just ahead of her time. I think that's exactly right. It was premature, and it would be wonderful if it actually worked. She was peddling an exciting breakthrough that got everyone excited, and I'm talking everyone. Elizabeth Holmes was able to convince prominent people that this blood analysis machine actually worked. And people just took her at her word. Nobody questioned, hey, does this magical machine actually work? It didn't matter because this CEO cult leader seized on investors' greed and made them believe that they were going to revolutionize the medical industry and make a ton of money doing it. This is what happens when you work to change things. First they think you're crazy, then they fight you, and then all of a sudden you change the world. Oh, talk about FOMO, the fear of missing out. Even big companies like Walgreens got caught up in her cult. If all these people are doing it, it must be true. So I should do it too, right? Investors were so infatuated with Elizabeth Holmes. I talked to Rebecca Jarvis, Chief Business Economics and Technology Correspondent for ABC News. She has followed this case from day one right up until her recent conviction. She also hosts the podcast, The Dropout. I think she was an outlier. In many ways, if you look at the fact that she raised almost a billion dollars, women receive a tiny portion of venture money. And she was able to go out and get money from a number of family offices, Rupert Murdoch, the Walton family, uh, the heirs to the Walmart fortune. So she was able to convince so many high profile people. And she also surrounded herself with this incredibly prestigious board, Henry Kissinger, George Schultz. General Mattis, she is an outlier. The other thing is she made these very bold claims. And if she had actually delivered on that promise, she could have been the next Steve Jobs. My work in covering con artists has taught me a lot about deception. Essentially, there are three ways that a con artist or a cult leader uses to deceive their followers and everyone around them. Omission, distortion, and lies. Telling 80% of the facts and leaving out the remaining 20% of the facts is not really telling the truth. Yeah, and Elizabeth omitted tons of information about just how far from ready their technology was for public use. But what makes Elizabeth Holmes a cult leader and not just a con artist is that her followers blindly followed, despite their understanding of the facts. Does this work? If you believe that it does, I'd like to hear you say I, I that. I know it does. And when the proverbial wool was lifted from their eyes, they felt duped. Next time on The Business of Cults, it's time to go big or go home. In episode one, we talked about the startup of a cult. Today, we talked about how a cult matures and operates. On our final episode of this series, we're going to talk about growing the cult into an international franchise. But some cults aren't so lucky. We're also going to talk about the cults that failed and had some spectacular endings. What happens when the cult leader goes to jail or dies? Can a cult go on without its leader? And spoiler alert, 
Nexium, the cult as we knew it, has gone the way of the Manson song. It has ceased to exist. The cult leader Vanguard, Keith Raniere, he was sentenced to 120 years in prison. But unfortunately, that's not the end of Nexium entirely. There are still a few members trying to keep it alive. Yeah, let's dive into that next time on The Business of Cults. I think Sarah Edmondson's going to have a lot to say about this one. Uh, definitely. The initial invitation is based on a fucking lie. It's not a woman's yeah. group. It's a blackmail MLM pyramid scheme started by a sociopath, limp dick, narcissistic douchebag. Okay. And we can also share our boots on the ground personal visits to two businesses operated and supported by cults. I cannot wait to hear your story, Javier. It was actually surprisingly delightful. Even weirder. I can't wait. And I will tell you about mine. And everybody, thank you for listening. We will see you next week for the final episode of The Business of Cults. Until then, I'm Rebecca Sebastian with The Dialogue Podcast. And I'm Javier Leva with The Pretend Podcast. And until next time, avoid dangerous cults and practice safe sex. Oh my gosh, Javier. <laughs> I will do my best. S-E-C-T. No, that was good. That was good. It's a pun. You know I love a pun. Oh gosh. <laughs> All right. We just lost everybody. Everybody's now unsubscribed. Come back. Come back. Not in a culty way. <laughs> hey, and speaking of followings, you can catch Javier on Instagram and social media at PretendPod on Instagram and Twitter. And you can find Rebecca Sebastian on Instagram or Twitter at DialoguePod. And that's die, D-I-E. Because of course it is. Thanks, everyone. See you next week. So Javier, tell me about the uh, phone call you just got. John, it was the craziest thing because it's New Year's Day and there's nothing going on really. I mean, it was just a quiet day. And all of a sudden, I get this call from this guy who's known as Wild Bill. I want to be really clear that I don't feel like a serial killer. You know, and, and, and when I think of the word serial killer or the, of, the, of a person who's a serial killer, I think of a guy like Ted Bundy or, or a person who, who does things for compulsion or emotional needs, emotional reasons. And I, myself, I, I'm not a person who has any bloodlust. <laughs> These terrible things I did, I did, you know, starting about 15 years ago. And, and, and I was just a heartless, cold-blooded asshole who hurt and killed people for money. You know, I don't have a compulsion to kill people or a desire necessarily to do that. Listen to the full interview with Wild Bill and John and I talk to the victim's family and friends. 
to find out how they searched for their missing loved ones and how they narrowed in on Wild Bill. Season 3 of Criminal Conduct, An American Serial Killer in Paradise, premieres on February 18th, wherever you get your podcast. Okay, that was a sneak peek for Season 3 of Criminal Conduct. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Creative Babble.